Hello, friends, and welcome to episode 143 of the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm assistant to Peter Lightheart, the president of Theopolis Institute. Theopolis Institute trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, after briefly discussing the Ascension, Peter Lightheart and Alistair Roberts are going to discuss the text for the seventh Sunday of the Easter season. And if you're looking to dig deeper into the topic of the Ascension, I've put some helpful links for you in the show notes. With that, we really hope that you enjoy this conversation over these passages, and as always, thank you so much for listening. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. This is Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with Brian Motes and also with Alistair Roberts, who is uh, joining us from Durham in the United Kingdom. Welcome again, Alistair. Thank you. Today we're discussing the readings for the seventh Sunday of the Easter season. Uh, That's May 13th in 2018. And the readings we have for this Sunday are Acts 1, verses 12 through 26, 1 John 5, verses 9 through 15, and John 17, verses 11 through 19. Um, and this is the Sunday just after the celebration of the Ascension, which is coming up this Thursday on May 10th. Uh, and the, uh, we're not going to discuss the text for that, that celebration directly, but I'd, I'd like to spend some time, Alistair, at the beginning here, talking a little bit about the uh, Ascension, the importance of the Ascension in our theology, the importance of the Ascension in the Gospel as it's presented in the New Testament. And let me just begin by throwing this out. Um, the gospel, it's, as it's presented in the various sermons that we have in the book of Acts, the apostolic gospel, is centered on the story of Israel. It's about Jesus as the culmination of the history of Israel. And specifically, it's about the, uh, the sufferings and the glory of Jesus. You could say it's death and resurrection is at the climax of that story of Israel. And that's true, but the the apostles often go on beyond the resurrection to talk about the exaltation of Jesus, the ascension of Jesus, and the uh, and then as Peter does in on uh, Pentecost, we'll talk about next in the next podcast. Uh, Peter goes on to talk about the gift of the Spirit. That's the uh, gift of the Son, who's the ascended Son, who's now received the Spirit in fullness from the Father and pours out that Spirit on his disciples. Uh, the ascension is the 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 climax of the entire gospel story, uh, and I think this is a this is a point that needs to be stressed because in uh, conservative evangelical circles, for a couple of centuries, the cross has been at the center. Rightly, has been central to our understanding of redemption, and the atonement has been centered on the on the work of Jesus on the cross. Uh, but uh, that's sometimes been to the detriment of. Uh, treatment of uh, the resurrection and the int- neglected to see how integral the resurrection is to the achievement of our salvation and uh, how central and critical the ascension is to the outworking of our salvation. Revelation 12 is a, I think, a good uh, hint or summary of what the uh, of the of the theme I'm trying to highlight. Revelation 12 is the vision of the woman in the in heaven who's in labor. She's being watched by the dragon. The dragon is ready to devour her child as soon as the child is born. Uh, the child is born and is immediately snatched up to heaven. Uh, I think the, the woman in labor is Israel in labor to give birth to the Messiah. Uh, Jesus is the child who is 
going to rule the nations with a rod of iron. But his whole history is summarized in two moments of incarnation, birth, and exaltation into heaven. Uh, and that's the uh, kind of the, those are the two poles of the apostolic narrative about Jesus. It's the coming of the Son in the flesh, and that uh, doesn't climax. Doesn't really come. The story doesn't come to an end until the Son is exalted and has assumed his position at the right hand of the Father. It's interesting when we look at the beginning of the Book of Acts. There are a number of ways in which the event of the ascension needs to be connected with the event that immediately follows after it of Pentecost. They're um, two sides of the same coin, as it were, and I think it can help to think back to events such as the shift from the ministry of Elijah to the ministry of Elisha, where Elijah's ascension is Elisha's Pentecost. And then also the way that Peter in his sermon on the day of Pentecost draws attention to what happened in Pentecost being the result of Christ ascending to God's right hand and pouring out what all the people are seeing and hearing. So there's a transition from the ministry of Christ to the ministry of his apostles and the church. But that transition is one that involves connecting these two things, the event of the ascension and the event of Pentecost, and seeing that um, we've been clothed with the church is clothed with power from on high, as it were, the mantle of Christ descending like the mantle of Elijah. And just as the beginning of Luke involves the transition from the ministry of John the Baptist to Jesus at the banks of the Jordan, so there's a transition here as well. One of the things I've found interesting, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on this, and thinking about the um, account of Revelation 12, I've read that passage slightly differently, not as a reference to incarnation and ascension, but as a reference to resurrection and ascension, that Christ is the firstborn from the dead, and that's the birth being spoken of in that case. And John's theology of Jesus's resurrection as a birth event, with the woman whose hour has come um, groaning in travail that a son might be delivered into the world and then the joy that results from that. And I've wondered about this detail for a number of a number of times in the past, but recently it occurred to me that the fact that it's 40 days after the resurrection that Christ has ascended and then the disciples go into the temple to wait for the, the gift of the Spirit, that that is associated with the presentation in the temple at the beginning of Luke that's also more generally with the presentation of the child in the temple after the birth of a son. And I wonder whether that's a particular connection that needs to be taken into account here, that the church is the bride entering into the temple and then Christ as the son enters into the heavenly temple 40 days after his um, new birth from the dead. Yeah, and I, I think I uh, certainly the, the image of birth is... Uh... Jesus used that to describe the the joy of the apostles after the travails that they experience. I guess I'd, I'm I'd have to be persuaded that that's what's going on in Revelation 12, um, and it's I guess it's partly because of the the um, uh, who is the mother that's giving birth to uh, Jesus. If you say that Jesus is the firstborn of the dead, firstborn of uh, from the ground of if you if you want to use this language, the Adama, the the mother earth. Um, uh, that would that would connote a resurrection. This is um, I take the woman again to be Israel, uh, and the I think the 
the labor pains that she's experiencing are the labor pains of Israel's entire history. Um, the whole history of Israel is a uh, is a birth story, um, and uh, Israel exists in order to give birth to the Messiah. So I'd, I'd, I'd have to be persuaded that this has uh, that this is specifically talking about the resurrection. But I think that it, in a sense, it's giving this compressed picture of what um, of Jesus' career. Uh, there's no direct reference to the cross. I think there's an implicit reference to the cross, especially when you read John and Revelation together. Uh, John 12 and Revelation 12 uh, end up in the same place in the in the matching chiasms of John and Revelation. Uh, and in that, in John 12, Jesus talks about him his cross as an exaltation. Uh, he's going to be lifted up on the cross. So um, John, Revelation 12, the the lifting up of the child into heaven is uh, in Johannine theology that's part of the uh, the cross is a part of that lifting up part of that exaltation so yeah with the compressed career you might have uh, kind of a, a uh, an overlapping reference to the uh, to the incarnation and to the rebirth of the son from the dead and I'd, I'd I'd have to think more about the the notion that this is more directly about the uh, the resurrection but in I guess in either case I'd, I'd go back to the Main point. I don't think that that cha- doesn't change the main uh, point I was making, which has to do with the exaltation of Jesus in His ascension as being the the climax of the story. You brought attention to the prophetic dimension of that with uh, Elijah and Elisha. Um, there's obviously also royal and uh, priestly dimensions to that. Jesus enters heaven as the great high priest who suffered. Uh, everything that we have suffered. He knows our frame. He knows our weakness, and so he's able to sympathize with us. He makes a good high priest. He's perfected, and uh, he's completed. He's qualified to be high priest by his sufferings. And he's also being exalted as king. So uh, the uh, announcement, the basic Christian confession of the early church that Jesus is Lord is a statement about his uh, ascension. Ultimately, it's about his exaltation to, the, to, the, uh, to be the, the, the Lord's anointed uh, on Zion. How do you think we can include the doctrine of the the ascension more clearly within our account of the atonement because it seems to me that an account of the atonement that's without reference to the heavenly temple and Christ's ascension as the great high priest into that realm is somehow lacking and maybe restoring that element to the picture will help us see in part the relevance of um the patterns that we see in Leviticus and elsewhere in the Old Testament for understanding what Christ does. Yeah, the, the ascension is uh, integral to the atonement, and um, I think we can see that from a couple of different angles. Uh, you, you take the uh, take the typology of Hebrews, and uh, the the work of Christ is not completed until He's presented His Himself and His blood in the heavenly sanctuary, so that the heavenly things can be cleansed with the better blood. And so that he can be the high priest who's passed through, uh, passed through the veil, passed through the heavenlies, and is now interceding for us and ministering uh, as the head of the church. So, um, if you think of Jesus, uh, think of the atonement as a priestly act, then that's completed by Jesus' ongoing priestly ministry in heaven. Uh, you were alluding to Leviticus there and uh, bringing up the issue of the sacrifices, which, of course, are not completed simply by the death of the animal, uh, but the, there's a there's a progression of uh, sacrificial there's a sacrificial movement that goes from the identification of the animal with the worshiper 
through the death, the display of blood, and then onto the ascension. So the the work of atonement is not completed until the sweet savor of the smoke arises and the Lord smells it. That's when it says that the Lord uh, is pleased. Uh, it's when the that's when atonement is made. It takes that whole sequence. Um, so when Jesus disappears into the cloud at the at his ascension, he is both a sacrifice. Uh, ascending in smoke to be the uh, satisfying uh, aroma to his father, and he's also the priest disappearing into the cloud of the day of atonement and entering to the heavenly sanctuary where he's going to offer his own blood to cleanse. So in both, from both of those directions, and you could probably think of others, um, the atonement needs the completion of the ascension, uh, of the resurrection and ascension. Just the, the cross without that is that's a truncated sacrificial movement. I think a further thing that the ascension brings to the picture is it throws the fact of incarnation and the descent involved there into sharper relief. So when Jesus talks in John 6 about the fact that he will ascend where he descended from, that that is in some sense a demonstration of the fact of the incarnation and of his coming from the Father is seen in his going back to the Father. Right. Right, yeah, the, and again, especially in in, uh, in John's in John's gospel, you have that downward upward movement uh, that uh, is completed by Jesus' return to his Father. One one last thing I want to point out, and I know this is something that you uh, think a lot about in in your work with the uh, politics of Scripture blog, but I think the one of the things the Ascension highlights is the inherently political dimension of the gospel. You can't. You can't preach a gospel that includes the announcement that Jesus is the the king who is now installed on Zion, ruling with a rod of iron. You can't preach that gospel, which is the gospel of the apostles, without making political claims and imposing political demands on political rulers. That's just inherent in the gospel. Um, well, let's move on to the uh, let's move on to the text for the seventh Sunday of Easter. This is the Sunday after the ascension. Uh, there are, there'll be some overtones of ascension in these readings. Of course, this is the Sunday just before Pentecost, and so there's an anticipation of uh, anticipation of Pentecost. And uh, the first reading is from Acts 1, verses 12 through 26, and I, I know that you just um, uh, have written a uh, Politics of Scripture lectionary post on this passage, and particularly highlighting the, uh, the role of uh, the importance of Peter's account of Judas's death. So maybe you could just summarize what you uh, what you wrote on that blog post to start. Yes, um, one of the things I suggest within there is that Petra is um, foregrounding a lot of the background that we have within the accounts of David's um, reign. And so Christ, of course, as the greater son of David, experiences very similar things to the things that we see within David's ministry and um, reign. So the experience of or the fact of Judas's betrayal and his later suicide is foretold by David. Now, David is talking most likely about Ahithophel and um, the other people that rose up against him. But Peter sees within that um, a, refer- a reference to what Judas does um, to Christ. I think this particular passage here can helpfully be paralleled also with the beginning of the reign of Solomon. So David gives the basic instructions for the beginning of the reign of Solomon within the beginning of 1 Kings. 
then there's a certain changing of figures within their offices. So Benaya has to replace Joab. Um, Abiathar is removed from office. Shimei is exiled. And um, I'm trying to remember who else there is. Um, another figure is is judged. But there's a series of changes in the in the administration in order to go forward into the new period that's about to occur. And this occurs just before the gift of the spirit of wisdom to Solomon. So I think there's a Pentecostal theme going on there. What we see within Acts 1 is the removal of Judas from office is paralleled, I think, with the situation of Joab. So Joab is one who betrayed Amasa with a kiss, and Amasa was killed with cutting open his belly so his entrails fell out and he was just left in a bloody mess in the middle of the road and then later on covered up with a garment and put in a field. And I think there is a play on the poetic justice of um, Judas's death. Judas is akin to Joab who rises up in two separate forms of rebellion. He has the internal coup where he tries to take over the military um, the control of the the military from Amasa, and then later on he has he joins the rebellion of Adonijah. Adonijah is the other figure I was thinking of earlier, but he's later on condemned. He's takes the horns of the altar. He's put to death by Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and then he's placed in his wilderness home, his habitation, which is desolate as it were, and another person takes his office. And so I think what we see at the beginning here is the establishment of a new glorious kingdom, as it were, a kingdom that's being prepared for the gift of wisdom and the various things are being put in place at this stage. And so I think the parallels with First Kings are illuminating at this point. Yeah, and one of, that, one of the things that that would imply is the, the transition from Luke to Acts is a transition from... Uh, a Davidic figure to a Solomonic church. You're moving from um, the, the 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 church, the apostolic church, as the successor, as it were, to the uh, uh, to to Jesus, empowered by His Spirit, and part of the uh, part of the establishment of this new phase of the kingdom is, as you said, the elimination of uh, of this of this traitor, and the uh, in Solomon's case, the elimination of several people who had plagued David's reign. Uh, Joab being the uh, the most egregious example, and not just with Amasa, but uh, he's, uh, he kind of specializes in uh, in uh, butchering wounds. He he leaves a lot of people with uh, open bellies, which and I think there has to be some kind of sacrificial connotation to the to the way that uh, Joab tends to kill people, and always people that uh, that David doesn't want killed. But one of the I thought one of the uh, strong points of your essay too was the. Uh, you noted that uh, a number of contemporary lectionaries leave out that portion of Peter's speech where he talks about the death of Judas, probably in deference to modern sensibilities um, about violence and um, especially about the uh, violence in religious violence uh, and um, uh, the uh, uh, keeping that in is essential to seeing the uh, um, I think, it, as the way you put it, there's 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 a uh, a shadow side or a, a a shadow side to the coming of the kingdom. The kingdom comes as a kingdom of light, but that involves the 
uh, overturning of the darkness, which means that uh, the enemies of the enemies of the light are uh, are punished and judged. I think one thing I've found it helpful for as well is maybe shedding some light upon the differences between the account in um, Matthew and the account in Acts of the suicide of of Judas. That there are different typologies that are being highlighted in diff- in these places. So I think the accounts can be reconciled, but it helps us to understand why um, maybe the differences might initially surprise us. That Luke and Matthew are trying to foreground different details. So um, in Matthew, maybe we're supposed to see the parallel between um, Ahithophel and Absalom. Absalom is the son of David who's hanging from the tree, and then um, Ahithophel is the one who betrays David, the one who rises up, who's sat at table and then advises his enemies. And in the same way within Matthew, we see the greater son of David, the righteous son of David in this case, um, hanging from the tree, and then Judas, who's the unfaithful betrayer, who's also hanging from a tree. And maybe there's a parallel there that Matthew wants us to see that Luke is Luke's focus seems to be elsewhere, but that helps us maybe to understand why there are differences between these accounts, but they're not necessarily at odds with each other in the way that many people might think at first glance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in in the the effort to harmonize the two accounts, which is a I think an appropriate effort to try to try to uh, show that they're consistent factually um, that can miss the the different typological backgrounds to the two accounts the um, two if we're too ready to harmonize then uh, we can um, miss some of these some of these Old Testament uh, some of the Old Testament depth one of the one of the interesting things about the passage too is the way that um, uh, the way that Peter is reading the psalm it's a psalm of imprecation Psalm 109 that he quotes there um, and he's reading it as a, uh, a prophecy about Judas, uh, that another one should take his office, that uh, his, his homestead would be made desolate, no man dwell in it. Uh, so uh, there's a, a certain way of reading, a certain way of reading the Psalms that's implied there. It's not the kind of Psalm that would immediately leap to our minds as a Christological Psalm. It's not about a shepherd who leads us beside still waters. Uh, it's not a, about a suffering Messiah, as we see in some psalms. Uh, it's, a, it's about a, a king, David, who is under attack, verbal attack, and uh, mockery, and, and is being cursed. Uh, and the large part of the psalm, the psalm, part that is quoted in uh, Acts 1, uh, is part of an imprecation. Um, whether that imprecation is... Uh, some some translation will show that imprecation is being quoted, that David is quoting what people are saying about him, the curses they're laying on him, uh, or whether it's David's own imprecation. I think that uh, that ends up being uh, somewhat immaterial because David is asking to be defended from the curse and um, asking the Lord to turn the curses that are thrown at him back on uh, back on others. That's not an obviously Christological kind of psalm, and yet Peter reads it as a Christological psalm, not just about Jesus, but about um, in his sufferings, but about Jesus in his relation to his uh, to the to the betraying apostle uh, Judas. A further detail that I find very um, 
interesting here, as we were discussing last week, the significance in First John of the testimony of the spirit, the water and the blood, and the fact that Christ comes not just by water, but also by blood. And here the emphasis that the um, replacement for Judas must have been someone who followed since the baptism of John and also be a witness to the resurrection seems to be a triangulation of these three forms of witness. So the spirit-empowered witness of Pentecost, which is connected with the witness of John the Baptist, and then the witness of um, Christ raised from the dead. Right, right. One of the links between the among the passages is this reference to Judas. Um, his death is described in some detail in Acts 1. But uh, in John 17, part of Jesus' prayer, he makes an allusion to the, the son of perdition. He's praying to his father and uh, telling his father that he has not lost any of those whom the father had given him, save the son of perdition. And Jesus, too, sees that as a, as a fulfillment of the scriptures, uh, that uh, the betrayer uh, has to come from the company of the, of the Messiah's friends. Uh, that's, a, that's a regular theme of the Psalms. Uh, David is not just upset by opposition, but he's uh, particularly distressed by the fact that the ones who are betraying him are the ones who broke bread with him who have, uh, that he's done good to. And uh, Jesus is uh, making that same, making uh, a general reference in that same direction, that the, the scriptures are fulfilled in the betrayal of Judas and the, uh, and the apostasy of Judas. And that he is a, one who's chosen, even though he's a devil. I think it's a striking figure with feature within um, John's account of Judas. And also that particular expression that he's the son of perdition, if I remember correctly, that's only found elsewhere in Scripture in 2 Thessalonians 2, in reference to the man of lawlessness. Follow that uh, trail a little bit. If Jim Jordan has argued the man of lawlessness is a reference to the Israelite high priest setting himself up in the temple, pretending to be God, taking on divine prerogatives. The connection of the two terms might be uh, um, might be significant. That uh, Judas is the one who betrays Jesus to the to the high priest uh, to the priestly authorities who are uh, wanting to put him to death. Of course, John 17 is largely Jesus' prayer for his disciples. Uh, he is, tells talks to his father about him uh, retaining those whom he's been given. Um, but a lot of the prayer is about Jesus sharing. Um, blessings and uh, a status with his disciples, a status and a, and, a, and a kind of intimacy that he has with his father that he's opening up to the disciples. So, uh, for example, he he's, says that he's not of the world. He says his disciples are not of the world. I think that refers to as a genitive of origin. It's not that they aren't in the world. Jesus says that explicitly. They are in the world, and yet uh, they're not. They don't originate from the world. They're not of the nature of the world, um, because they're not born from the world. And that's something Jesus initially says about himself, but then he says it also about the apostles. He talks about the, uh, uh, he, he's uh, uh, asked the Father to sanctify the apostles, and then he talks about himself being sanctified uh, so, that, uh, so that he can sanctify the apostles. So th- the, the movement of the prayer is that Jesus is, speaking to his father about this unique relationship that he has as the eternal son. Uh, and yet, at the same time, he's disc- the prayer is about uh, extending that, that, that status and that, that intimacy uh, beyond Jesus to those who are with Jesus, to the disciples. 
the discussion also in this context that the disciples are manifested in part through the fact that the world hates them. Um, it's a striking contrast with the themes of love that are very, very much present in the chapter surrounding. Yes, and we'll see this next week in our uh, readings uh, when we discuss our readings for Pentecost Sunday, but we'll look at uh, one of the uh, sections of the Upper Room Discourse where Jesus is promising the gift of the Spirit, but right in the middle of that promise of the gift of the Spirit, the paraclete is going to come, the comforter, the helper, uh, but right in the middle of that, Jesus is warning the disciples that they're going to share in the sufferings that he shared in. So uh, that's just another dimension of what um, he's um, what he's sharing with his disciples. It's not just the it's not just the the positive things that the happy things, but um, the part of the privilege of being a disciple of Jesus is sharing in his sufferings. One thing I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on getting back to the issue of Judas is the fact that Judas is chosen. He's not just someone who um, acts against Christ's mission, but he's specifically. He's given, as it were, to Christ. He's someone who's chosen by Christ in some ways for this necessary role in precipitating the future that God has purposed. But similar to someone like Pharaoh or Korah, there's a purpose that he plays, but it's a negative role. Is there any way that this could maybe help us to understand the way election functions more generally within John's Gospel? Nothing particular, um... No particular thoughts. What do you? What direction are you thinking? Um, I'm. I'm not sure yet. I, in part, I think, what we see within John's Gospel is an emphasis upon these different parts that are to be played within the the mission of Christ, and that election is not merely about individuals being saved, but it's being part of this greater drama, and. That's part of what's going on. I think also there's the relationship between the father's role and the son's role. The son has these persons given to him by the father. And then he also chooses them in some sense. But there is a there is a dynamic there that often I don't think is sufficiently taken account of. Yeah, okay. I, I'm, I'm getting the drift. Uh, so the, the, the election is not just an election to um, ultimate salvation or communion with God, but it's election to... Uh, vocation, um, and that would in, that would include election of somebody who's going to have a vocation of betrayal, like Judas, but also uh, the some are, uh, the, uh, the the other apostles are being chosen not just to be with Jesus in some kind of generic sense, but they're chosen to have this particular role in the uh, in the coming of the kingdom and this particular role in the establishment of of, uh, of uh, the church. Yeah, I think that's right. Yes. The, the, in the same way as Paul is a chosen vessel to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, or Jeremiah is chosen in the womb for his prophetic um, calling. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I thought of uh, Paul's conversion. The debate about Paul's conversion, about whether it's a it's a conversion uh, that's a conversion to salvation, or whether it's a vocation. And I, you know, that's those kinds of debates are often fruitless because you don't want to choose between them. It's both. Um, uh, he's uh, he's called to uh, be with Jesus, but being with Jesus means being sent out as an apostle. Jesus is the one sent, so that you can't be in communion with Jesus without being sent out. So, um, yeah, I, one of the other thoughts I had, and this is something I've, I've talked about in um, uh, writings on apostasy, um, 
I think the I think the example of Judah does gives us give us a kind of concrete picture of what apostasy looks like and what what really is going on when somebody is uh, brought into uh, as as uh, various places in the New Testament talk about brought into communion with the Spirit, taste the heavenly gift. Those who are come to the knowledge of uh, Christ and then turn away from that, as Second uh, Peter says, uh, what's what's uh, happening in that in a is um, I think Judas is a good example to explore that because um, you have an, uh, a genuine personal relationship between Jesus and Judas. It's it's not like it's uh, it, it's a real relationship. Judas really uh, does participate in the mission and ministry of the apostles for a time. Uh, he has fellowship with Jesus. He eats to, with Jesus. He speaks to Jesus, and Jesus speaks to him. Uh, there's this real personal communion, but of course, uh, you could say that it's not—it's not deep, it's not permanent. Certainly not. But there's there's something real going on there that Judas um, uh, inexplicably, absurdly uh, abandons. So I think th- that uh, that setting is a good a good location to ex- to explore what it means to be uh, a chosen son of perdition. That in the sense that you're a chosen one and yet ultimately apostate. It's also interesting that. Whereas in Acts, there's this theme in various points of a two visitation, double visitation, that Moses first came to his people and they didn't accept him as their leader. And then he came back later in the Exodus. And then you have um, the account of Joseph, his first um, treatment by his brothers, and then later on when he appeared to them in Egypt. And that theme being applied to Christ, the theme that we see within Stephen's sermon. And then, more generally, the difference between sin against the Son of Man and sin against the Holy Spirit, that the one is forgiven, the other is not. Judas seems to be the first person who's um, condemned in a more absolute sense. He, In that sense, maybe he's the archetypal example of the person who's uh, apostate. He's someone who has that foretaste of the Holy Spirit before other people have, and yet he still falls away. Yeah, that's. I, I think that's a good way to put it. Good, good way to see it. Uh, we have a, a couple minutes left for this episode. Let me uh, say a couple of things about the First John passage. And as I'm looking back at my reading and my notes on it, I realized that I had read beyond the specific passages that were selected. But I, I'm glad I did because uh, the text, as assigned, ends at verse 15 of First John 5, uh, and ends with this promise that. Uh, the Lord hears us when we ask him. We know that our requests, we know that we have the requests which we have asked from him. We have confidence before him in prayer. And then it goes in verse 16 to go to talk about correcting a brother who's committing a sin, a sin not leading to death. And um, the lectionary suggests that there's an, there's an end to the topic of prayer with verse 15. But I think in, uh, as uh, it's pretty clear that uh, John is still talking about prayer uh, in verse 16, when when he's talking about correcting the brother who's committed a sin not leading to death, the response to that is to ask, and uh, God will give life to those who commit sin not leading to death. So part of the efficacy of prayer that he's talking about is an efficacy for bringing straying brothers back. Uh, and um, it's a, a fairly striking way of stating it in verse 16, uh, leaving out the parts of uh, uh, the, the words that are not actually in the Greek, 
If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not to death, he shall ask and will for him give life to those who commit sin not to death. Uh, my New American Standard Bible inserts uh, the subject God in, that, uh, in one of those clauses. He shall ask and God will give life. But it actually says he will ask and will for him give life. Uh, certainly God is the one giving life, but this is part of the, this is a supporting the effic- efficacy of prayer that he's just been talking about. Um, there's a life-giving quality to our prayer. We become um, uh, mediators of God's life to our brothers when we pray for them. I think it's, it's also striking that the other places in the New Testament that talk about correcting brothers verbally and confronting them directly. Uh, but here, the response is to go to God uh, if anyone sees a brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and uh, pray for that brother, and uh, that will bring life to the brother. So there's a, there are times of confrontation. There are times when, uh, as uh, Paul says in, in uh, Galatians, uh, that we're to uh, go to our brothers in love, in gentleness, recognizing our own weakness, but we still need to confront. Uh, but then there are times when uh, we see a brother who's committing a sin when the proper response is not to confront but to to pray and trust the Lord will deal with it and give life. And that would fit in with what he says earlier that he who has the son has life that out of this person also will flow rivers of water to give life to others around them. Right. Uh, so then uh, and this leading up to uh, next week's podcast and uh, our discussion of Pentecost. Uh, Pentecost is the gift of the spirit we are indwelt by the Spirit. We're tempers, temples of the Spirit, but uh, uh, I think we should think of uh, the temple uh, of ourselves as temples in the sense that uh, Ezekiel sees a temple. He sees a restored temple, a glorious temple. Uh, God's glory is there, but flowing out from that temple uh, come the living waters. So the Spirit is given not to simply to dwell in us and for us to capture and uh, hoard but the Spirit is given to us so that the Spirit can flow through us and give life to others. And talking about the Spirit there, would you see the Spirit as the witness of God that he's spoken of earlier in this particular section? Because of the, because of the earlier statement, verse 7, it's the Spirit who bears witness, the Spirit is the truth. Is that, is that the connection you're making? I'm thinking of verse 10 particularly, he who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. Right. Yeah, but one of the reasons for saying that that's the Spirit is by because John has just yes. told us that the Spirit is the one who bears witness. The Spirit is the truth. How do we have the witness in ourself? Um, yeah, I think the Spirit would be the uh, person who who mediates that witness, who is the the one by whom we have that witness in ourselves. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.